Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 334 of the podcast. It's February 28th, 2019. And joining me today, all the way from Australia, is Barry McCarthy. Barry spent more than 15 years in leadership roles with Toyota in Australia and now works as an associate with the consulting firm Hansha. We were able to spend a lot of time talking when I participated late last year in uh, Hansha's executive development mission trip to Japan. One thing we talked about uh, quite a bit was Barry's experience with Toyota being what he calls a development company, as I blogged about late last year, and there's uh, other blog posts about the Hansha trip. You can find links to all of that by going to leanblog.org slash 334. In our discussion, Barry talks about why he was skeptical about lean before he joined Toyota, but he evolved as Toyota continues to change and evolve. So why is Barry afraid that lean outside of Toyota might get stuck in the past? We'll talk about all of that, people development, what it means to be a development company, and more. Barry, hi. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast today. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Mark. Thanks for the invitation. I've been looking forward to speaking again after our uh, trip to Japan where we met. Likewise. Yeah, I'm excited that we can do this, that we can have you know, further conversation, that we can share that with the listeners. But and as far as introductions go, um, you know, first off, where, where are you dialing in from? People may uh, be picking up on, on an accent. And, you know, if you can talk about, you know, some of your work history before Toyota, how you ended up at Toyota, and then, you know, it's turned out there's, there's an after Toyota. If you can give us kind of the, the summary before we dig, dig into details. Sure can. Uh, it's uh, in Melbourne at the moment. I'm, uh, it's about five o'clock in the morning, thereabouts, we started. So um, it's early in the morning in Melbourne. The weather's hot at this time of year. Um, now, I took a while, Mark, to get to where I am today. I started out in civil engineering and then I moved into line management in a plant bakery, if you can imagine, a continuous flow of bread products. Hmm. I spent 12 years there in different roles. About nine years into my time, I was introduced to Toyota Thinking. And I must say, as a line manager, I was very sceptical of the claims of what Lean and Visual Workplace, which was the version we called it, uh, could deliver to the business. Never had I the wildest or remotest ambition or thought of ever working for Toyota. But how things would work out and change, uh, you just never know, do you? In the last two years at the bakery, I was managing a learning and development project and that was linked to the Australian Qualification Framework. It was a workplace competency-based training uh, program, and it was sponsored by the government. And the program we were running included transport, logistics, sales, packaging, plant baking, and the target audience was around 500 workers. The team I was working with there were quite creative, and our implementation at the time gained quite a bit of recognition. This is when Toyota approached, uh, that was Toyota in Australia, and they wanted to come and benchmark our program. Did I get some mileage uh, with the CI team on that one? Mm -hmm. At the time, I was oblivious to the problem that Toyota was having in Australia, uh, which was that they had a training system in place long before the national training program, and they were struggling to integrate it with the, the new framework. They came, had a look around, and this ended up in a job offer, and that was around 2003. Uh, my curiosity got the better of me, and I accepted and moved into Toyota. I must say that it was a roller coaster ride from there. Trips to Japan to understand their expectations and the opportunities to see and assess ideal situations regarding training and development uh, kept coming and coming. So, um, Anyway, the implementation went well and with the program integrated into the Fundamental Skills Program, we, we ended up getting about 1,600 team members through it over time. I then went on to work on the integration of supervisor management uh, training and development, uh, what Toyota calls floor management development system. 
then also this led me into transitioning to talent management, the Toyota Institute in Australia, and this was where I was exposed to more of the global content like the Toyota Way, Toyota Business Practices, TVP Problem Solving as it's known, on-job development, you know, policy deployment through Hoshin Canary. And in 2013, then I moved into manufacturing organisational planning and development, which was a big name, but the division basically housed the TPS office, which I spent some time working with engineering logistics and the development systems there. Um, when, when Automotive closed and the announcement was made, our role moved from supporting uh, or moved to supporting the quality and the last car being our best car. But at the same time, we had to transition our employees into the future uh, to maintain the motivation and also prepare them for their futures outside of the business. And this was done through an upskilling program, which I was part of. There was another program for uh, placement and training for your new skill, which was also implemented at the same time. Now, this upskilling, we worked very much on how to convert their tacit knowledge or practical wisdom into a context for their future potential work environments because a lot of Toyota people don't know what they know and they, they definitely don't know how to always put it into words. So um, I'm not quite sure, you know, how to go into all the reasons for closure. They were complex and I'm probably not the right person to talk about those. So once the direction was given, we all had to reconsider our future plans. So we're better to start for me personally than with an A3. And the outcome the A3 delivered, uh, I would call a very smooth and low-stress transition for me personally. Probably, you know, I loved working most definitely at Toyota. It was a challenge and it was a challenge I needed at the time. Leaving in 2017 was right timing for the next challenge. What am I doing now? Over the last year and a bit, I've been continuing my executive duties with the Association of Manufacturing Excellence in Australia. I also enjoy joining Honcha on their Japanese executive study missions. I um, call myself an explicador, doing some explaining yeah. uh, is probably my role. And I also work with a couple of companies that Honcha support in the US, and I have some organisations that in Australia and Japan that I advise privately as well. So that's about me. Yeah, well, now we'll get we'll get to dig into the the next layer on on all of that. And, and one thing I was going to ask as a follow up, I mean, you said you know, it, you know suggested that you don't know um, might not be the right one to speak to all the reasons why the plants were closed. But to set context for for people who don't know or haven't followed what's happening in the Australian auto industry. Um, the, the entire industry stopped producing in Australia, not just Toyota, correct? Correct. And um, Australia is a very small market and it's sometimes used as a testing ground. So if you look at Toyota, they, um, they used Australia very much to help them understand the Western culture and that allowed them to then move into Newmi and Kentucky have the right, I suppose, mindset around um, relations with employees in the West. And so they used it very strongly to learn. And I think that's still a feature that Australia has. It's well out of the way. It's a Western country close to Asia. You can do things down in Australia and it doesn't affect your global business. It seems to be mm -hmm. a good testing ground. And yeah. so I think that's a big learning out of uh, for Toyota in yeah. Australia. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about, you know, going back to when you were working, uh, you know, for the, for the bakery um, and that company, when you mentioned being skeptical about lean at first, I mean, this is not at all uncommon. Um, it might sound too good to be true, or it's just different than a lot of organizations operate. What, what was behind some of the skepticism? Can you talk more about that? Well, to give you a little bit of context, when I was working for this large Australian company uh, before going to Toyota, I, I was very sceptical, you know, and uh, it was around 2000, year 2000, and I was a line manager in a plant and I just delivered around 22000 a week in cost savings 
and I have to admit it was uh, delivered through hard work and not by good organising. Um, I was in my boss's office not long after achieving the target and he said to me, uh, your target for next year is a cost reduction of 30000 a week. And, you know, I suppose who hasn't had that kind of experience? I was lost for words and I said to him, that's totally out of my capability. Where did that number come from? And he said, no particular place was his response. And, you know, I said, what are your ideas on how I should find that sort of savings? And he said, well, it's not my problem. That's what you get paid for. <laughs> his back, you know, and so I was in a really good state of mind, you know, for, but a couple of weeks later after the bruising had gone down from me banging my head on my desk after the meeting, I get a call from him saying the company had organised a training session and it was at a hotel at Melbourne Airport so that managers could fly in from around the country and uh, they had some consultants who they said had worked with Toyota in South Africa and they were going to talk to us uh, for a couple of days on this concept of visual workplace. Now, my boss informed me that, you know, listen well, take good notes because the target was now 35000 a week yeah. after the training. Yeah. And so there's no such thing as a free lunch in there. Uh, these consultants, I suppose, introduced the program, you know, their visual workplace, and it was all lecture-based. And we started with 5S and having people going around cleaning things. Well, we were in the food manufacturing, so it wasn't actually a messy place like some of the photos of the machines, shops they were showing us. And my thoughts were really fixed on, uh, well, allocating more time to cleaning is not going to take a chunk out of my weekly target. And then they went on to visualising charts, assessments of posture, collecting data, team meetings. And, and I had all the same feelings that, most people get this is just extra work for me, you know, and in the head, in my head, costs were going through the roof in the opposite direction to where I needed them. Um, look, I have to admit, I had ego issues as well. I had a mindset of I know my job and I know it better than any of these guys and, you know, you can be a little bit overconfident. I was very set in my paradigm. But I also could, uh, you know, not see how, you know, uh, these uh, targets could be achieved by what they were talking about. And, yes, I felt the targets were far from realistic, though I also understood the economic drivers of the supermarkets and how bloody-minded they can be about price. And so at this point, I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't have the support of a good organising and development system behind me uh, as the organisation didn't have it. And whenever I go to talk to people about organising or lean, uh, I always place that sceptical me, so to speak, mm. in the audience. Mm -hmm. And I find it just keeps me honest and I lose some of, um, I suppose, the heavy-handedness you can have with when you have ideas and it keeps that humility into context. Because, you know, lean is not an easy concept to grasp. You know, we have to respect that. Everyone takes their own time to build their own understanding and we have to find better ways to help them take advantages of yeah. uh, the, you know, what yeah. Lean can offer. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned arrogance. I mean, that, that can happen on both sides of the equation. If you're on the client side, so I know my work, I don't have anything to learn. Who are you to tell me I can do better? And, I, and it can also unfortunately be on uh, the consultant side of the consultant saying, oh, I've got experience, I've got all the answers. And, 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 and that's uh, you know, probably set up for uh, a combative, um, you know, poor relationship and um, poor results. Um, you know, I think it's interesting, Toyota emphasizes so much the idea of leading with humility. Um, you know, I hope if I have moments as, as a writer or uh, a consultant, or if I'm coming across as arrogant, I hope friends would call me on it because uh, that doesn't really help invite others to learn when someone's so strident and I've got something for you. It could be correct and good and helpful, but, but people often react, um, I think, in very understandable uh, ways that, that, that doesn't lead to progress, right? Yeah, it's, it's um, kind of this concept of appreciative listening, you know, really being open and listening to the other side and and taking in and absorbing uh, what's going on. We tend to jump, like you said, to you know, our positions and our set beliefs very quickly. No, I mean, I don't know what kind of stories 
you heard within Toyota, if this is a, a fair question, but you know, there, there I've only read about Taiichi Ono and there was a lot of brilliance there, but there's also a lot of stories where it sounds like he was sort of, for lack of a better word, rubbing people's faces in it of, you know, how, how bad they were and how much waste there were. And I don't know if that's just in how the, the how the stories are told, but um, I've, I've heard others kind of make the joke about, uh, you know, people who've worked with them saying, oh, you know, he, he's Mr. Oh, no, as in, oh, no, he's coming. Um, I'm curious, like, what's the lore within Toyota about that approach uh, to, to pointing out opportunities and, and sort of driving people to perform better? I think it's an interesting one to study because um, you have to understand, I think, and I'll talk a little bit about this later on, that uh, Toyota's really good at managing paradox and keeping mm -hmm. it open and live. Now, what we tend to do in the West is we want an answer one way or another. So, you know, we would, we would take, well, do we want a hard line or do we want a soft line? And EG Toyota, as I understand it, was really good at balancing uh, say the hardliners within the organisation and the softliners within the organisation. Now, probably around the 1990s, it started to swing more towards the uh, softline approach, the HRD approach to it, and more around the quality circles, the engagement of the workforce. Now, that doesn't mean to say that it, it because it's a paradox, it's open and it can swing, so it moves. Uh, though I do think uh, there's more of a HRD line. Now, you know, so uh, the stories I've heard is that, uh, you know, uh, Ono probably knew when to, um, you know, back off and allow the softer line to come through. He was tolerant of it. He certainly didn't, uh, you know, push back on it as such. But what EG Toyota did was allow uh, both and, and everybody's viewpoints to come to the table. So, yeah, I, I take it with caution these days. And we've got to be a little bit careful that we don't get stuck in the past. Toyota is constantly moving and changing and, and we don't want to refer to how it, uh, you know, was, you know, say, 20, 30 years ago. And the times were different. The environment was different. The workplace was different then. There are a lot of things we won't tolerate in the workplace these days that was tolerated then. Yeah. And I imagine, I mean, as, as histories are told and stories are written, either, you know, things get exaggerated or the most interesting moments get captured that don't paint a full picture of the person and their approach. Well, the other thing too is I think there's a risk that Lean could become stuck in a time frame or become a little bit cultish. I see a lot of Ino-ism uh, on the, the talk groups, but I think you've got to balance that. Um, and also sometimes Ono was representative of, you know, the Toyota manager. Probably, though, he was very different to the leader of the business at that time who was EG Toyota. And you've got to give a lot more, I suppose, bandwidth and space to EG and what he did in the company and some of the other people who really shaped the company as well. A lot of... Um, what Ono is credited for probably came from the people around him as well. These, you know, Toyota is a very, I suppose, democratic, involved sort of company. So, and it's it's easy to tag a saying or something to a particular person. So I want to come back to sort of you know skepticism about lean. I think it's interesting that you say this is a good thing. Uh, I think uh, remembering you know. The skeptical me, I think, as you put it, when you when you're working with or teaching people who are new to lean, and you know we we've, we we end up talking about this a lot on the podcast. The idea of in healthcare, people are quick to point out, well, hospitals are different than factories. I'm like, well, of course they are. Uh, patients are not cars. Well, of course not. I, I know people in the aerospace industry who kind of turn their nose up or they're skeptical and say, well, planes are far more complicated than cars, man. How, how do you help people um, sort of, you know, get past that? Or yeah, how, how do you engage people into seeing the potential for how lean fits to, to get past some of that skepticism? Well, it's interesting. Last year, Toyota totally reorganized uh, 
its structure and it moved TPS out of manufacturing. And so they really want to send a message that it's not just in manufacturing. And as they move more towards a data and mobility company, you will see more of a focus of applying TPS into these new parts of the business. It was always a belief that the best gains for a business were not actually in uh, the manufacturing area, they were in the support areas when it came to TPS. And a lot of our time was spent in those areas. Uh, to truly design a, a lean thinking for the future, you know, I really encourage people to go back and get a true understanding of the philosophy that it's built on. And many lean versions do not seem to account for what we've just spoken about, that paradox and the balancing. And they, they have a, you know, they, they try to eliminate the tension rather than to actually allow that tension uh, to play itself out and to try and balance it. So I suppose having come out of Toyota a year ago, I can't classify myself as very new to lean. And I say that seriously as I'm trying to define what lean is you know my current definition would be that lean is a metaphor or an interpretation of how Toyota organizes and develops its people and its business activities now as an interpretation I see many variations as I see people consulting in it so that part is a little bit hard to put a clear finger on the reason for this though is that Toyota is all the time moving and it's changing and people are leaving and having different experiences in Toyota and taking different messages out there. It's very emergent. And what you've got to realise too is that as a development person in Toyota, I was not always looking to give all of the knowledge to the manufacturing person. It's too much knowledge around it. So you have to kind of, you know, section out what you give to the different areas. So you can never as a person coming out of manufacturing, have a full picture of what Toyota's about. If you come out of a purchasing or a sales area, you don't understand, you know, how much information and theory behind uh, what, um, what's being implemented. So you get all of these different viewpoints. If you merge them all together, you get the best image, I suppose. But if we go back and regard uh, lean as a metaphor, and I can really understand also the difficulty people have connecting with it. And if I explain it this way, in thinking about how Toyota organised its business, uh, the words that come to mind post-2001 are different to the ones that came before it. In 2001 with the Toyota Way, we start to see a lot more about respect for humanity, teamwork, Kaizen, practical wisdom, contribution to society, continuous improvement, <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't um, easily associate these words with lean. Now, lean never really moved as a, a metaphor with the way Toyota is moving is one way that I probably see it. And really, when I look at those words and I put them there out in front of me, I probably, uh, the last thing that comes to my word is a metaphor, lean. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't really connect for me. And so I think we need to start to build new understandings around that if we want to move forward. Uh, otherwise, we will lose more and more people and it will become more difficult. Now, looking at a Japanese Toyota production line, as you and I stood over on the gantry up there last year, I can understand how people can be drawn to a conclusion that it was lean. The level of waste removal on that line was extreme. And, you know, if you were sitting up there and... I remember initially when I went into one of those plants, for the first nine days, I was just in awe. You know, I, I thought it was a machine. You know, I had no doubt. And initially when I moved into Toyota, uh, I tried to um, understand uh, lean as a, um, as a machine. And so, you know, a cold Cartesian Newtonian tool-based uh, machine image is a possible metaphor. But as I got more exposed to it, I thought I, I need a more innovative way of thinking about this. You know, I moved to thinking of it as a system or an organism with boundaries and feedback and improvement in some ways. But there are more models of systems thinking than there are minutes in the day. 
So again, the biological neo-Darwinism excludes much of the emergent activity I observe when I stand back and look at a Toyota production system. So my current metaphor, what happens in Toyota, is more biosocial. So this allows us a playground to think in where we can uh, use the words such as dialogue. You know, um, instead of systems, we can use relationships. Instead of feedback, we can use backtalk. It allows us access to a whole lot of other theories on developmental theory, routine, process and pattern theories. And then we can engage more confidently with uncertainty and the emergent. You know, biosocial is a far better match for humanity and practical wisdom aspects that Toyota put out there than, than Lean. So um, I know this is difficult for people to move away from from lean, but I think we need to start to put a more biosocial metaphor out there uh, that universalizes respect for humanity, contribution to society. And then we'll have a more relevant language to engage any business or organization because, you know, then if we start to talk about what we call currently a tool like A3 and convert this model into, um, a you know, this biosocial thinking, then what we find is this tool becomes a, a uh, actual dialogue. And then rather than filling in a form with a dialogue mindset, it, it really pushes the idea of having engagement with people. And the manager gets more and looks for more. You know, if we look at the what they call the Nemawashi log, now that's a paper that sits behind the A3 that never really gets shown, but I, I call it like an integration log. And it's a list of people and their viewpoints on the problem. Now, by looking at this, I can ask the owner of the paper, who may be my direct report, or they're presenting the paper to me, um, what did so-and-so think in finance, you know? How did you integrate their thoughts into the paper? If not, why not? You know, I'm starting to have a dialogue here to flesh out with them all of the different viewpoints. I can say I don't see any comments from purchasing. Have you actually gone out and sought their input? You know, the secrets of these so-called tools, they're all about patterns of dialogue they create and how they engage people. So I think if we can start to view them not so much as tools but as a dialogue mindset, we'll be able to talk to people more broadly in the, in the different areas that we go and try and explain the real strength and power of, of these lean systems. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and just jump in with just a, a real detailed follow-up for people who don't know the word Nemawashi. Is it fair to say that, I mean, my, the way I was taught, it's the idea of you're laying a foundation, you're building support, that's the dialogue that you're talking about on that sheet of paper, those conversations with different stakeholders? Yeah, and, you know, if I'm reviewing someone's paper, I'd like to see that they've spoken to lots of people, and I want to see that... Uh, they're engaging in the viewpoints that those people are offering. If I see they've engaged a lot of people and they haven't taken on board any of the ideas in, that they put forward and I don't see those in the paper, then I get a bit worried that it's a bit closed and they're thinking it's closed and they're not going to get the best solution. So the real value in the A3 is some of the papers and the activities that people do behind it. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you use the word tool. I mean, you know, the A3 could be a very prescriptive template. And, and I've seen some people, some organizations where it's really just a matter of like, oh, people roll their eyes. And so I got to fill out the form and the spirit of it, or maybe what you were saying, the philosophy isn't there. If people are of the mindset, you know, a leader is going to uh, force people to get on the bus instead of building uh, actual support. I mean, there, there could be very different thought processes surrounding the same piece of paper, right? And it's not the piece of paper that makes it a powerful methodology, right? Well, you had Art on a few weeks ago talking about it, and and I think he was... Um, Art Smalley for people... Yeah, that's right. That, that, yeah. And he, he was... Um, quite right and there are lots of different ways that you don't want to be too, I suppose, restrictive on your A3s. They're a communication tool. They're a way of sharing your, your thoughts and ideas. So 
don't be too restrictive about it. The, the important thing of doing a paper is you might do two or three of them a year. It's to help you with your dialogue in action. So you should be able to use that process when you're talking normally out in the workplace about a problem. So it's just to make sure that you've got all the steps right and or if it's a bigger paper where you have to get uh, consensus, then you have to um, to put your ideas on paper. But, yes, it's, it's a great tool for coaching. It's a great tool, tool for giving people encouragement and confidence. So the real benefit is how are people coached through it by their manager and what experience do they have in, in actually going through the process. Mm-hmm. If you don't have that coaching and support as you do the paper, then you're not really going to learn as, as deeply. So yeah. it's, a, it's an important pattern, but you'll see that it's built on PDCA and this is mm-hmm. what I talk about. Toyota is really good at seeing patterns. They create PDCA as a common uh, set of knowledge and then they'll build an A3 paper, which is a bit more complex on top of it. They'll build different layers on top of it as they go. So it's um, it's... If you can build all these patterns, and I'll, I might talk more to it later, if you can build them, then uh, you can actually create synergies and and get real benefit in your business. I don't think a lot of organisations take the opportunity and get synergy out of building patterns within their development systems. Yeah. Um, one other thing we were going to touch on was, I think when it comes to philosophy, um, the, the Toyota Way document that you mentioned, and then eventually Jeff Liker's book, The Toyota Way, try to sketch out some of these mindsets or, or principles. And, you know, the very first thing, I mean, I'm sure it's number one in Jeff Liker's list for a reason, is the idea of making decisions with the long-term perspective in mind, um, even at the expense of the short term. And so I think of maybe, for example, putting time into building support through through Nimawashi and, and discussions and dialogue. That takes time, but it's probably the right thing to do as opposed to a manager who's going to just force people uh, to implement something like that. That's faster, but I don't think that's really sustainable or effective. And so I was wondering if you, know, if you could elaborate on some of that. And I guess the other comment I'll make, you know, as part of the, 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 the thought here is, you know, when you talk about lean as an interpretation of Toyota, I think a lot of organizations that would say they're copying Toyota by, quote unquote, implementing lean, uh, I don't like the word implement, like, I think a lot of them are still doing this with very much a short term focus. So it's always puzzling to me, like you say, the organization says, they're emulating Toyota, but but they're not emulating point one, which seems like a really important point in that philosophy, right? Yeah, so because we're sometimes working with a lot of engineers, they don't connect well with the idea of philosophy. And but philosophy actually pre- prepares us for what we don't see and don't yet know. So it's a really good way to deal with the emergent. and And that's why it's when you're doing strategy, it's really good to fall back on and take forward your philosophies. And if we look at the Toyota philosophy, it goes very deep and they're not afraid to put it out there uh, very clearly. And it probably originates back in the actions and beliefs of Sakichi Toyota. And his spirit, you know, is defined in Toyota publications as always be studious and creative and stay ahead of the times. You know, and this is still a driving force behind Toyota today. If you follow uh, the business paths of Steve Jobs and Sakichi Toyota, there's a lot in parallel there if you have a read about it sometime. But by all accounts, Sakichi was a very confident, flamboyant and pro- prolific inventor. And at around 16, he decided to follow the creed of his father, which was Hotuku Thought, and this was devoting himself to nation and society. So when we start to talk about human development, society, this was a full-on dedication and devotion to forwarding, pushing forward nation and society. And he, did, he reflected on this a lot, and the talent he chose to do this in was to be an inventor. 
and specifically create patents. He decided his most suitable contribution uh, was inventive activities around the power loom. Now, most of us at 15 and 16 don't, don't go into that much thought about our career. But he also took guidance from an English author, Samuel Smiles, and it was a book called Self-Help, which is a really interesting book to read. But it gave you the inventor's mindset, I think. And he also then started from, uh, if anyone's read that book, he started night classes in Patent Monopoly Act, which was just um, starting to put, put in place in Japan at the time. And I encourage people, if you get the chance like we did, to visit the Toyota Museum. It's just an amazing contribution he made, you know. I go there every time I go to Japan and still find it hard to get my head around how anyone could be such a prolific inventor. Um, I'm just so taken aback by that in such a short period of time. Now, interestingly, what Sakichi is most remembered for besides his looms is his philosophy of judoka, you know, building quality into the process. Uh, the other innovation, you know, was that he actually changed the characters within the word judoka to have a secondary meaning. So this is a um, thing that Toyota still does today and it confuses a lot of people and they don't interpret the words correctly. So you could still take the traditional meaning of judoka um, by reading the characters, but he actually just changed one character in there and it moved the concept of automation to automation, meaning, you know, automation with a human touch was the way it was phrased. Now, I won't go into a lot of detail here, but the interesting thing is that if you change language, you actually change the workplace as well and the thinking. And Toyota does that all the time today. And they're so subtle sometimes that people don't even uh, realise it in the outside world when they're interpreting it. So the, the philosophy of Jadoka is deeply embedded in Toyota and that's coming into the autonomous vehicles today. You see that Toyota's out there saying, well, we want to actually enhance people's capabilities. We want, you know, autonomous vehicles to work with people and for people together whereas you see some other companies saying well we're looking at replacing people you know we want fully autonomous vehicles now you also see judoka coming into the management systems the other one that i want to raise though that he's not given enough credit for in toyota which is uh, really important is for creating a culture of harmony within this persistent tension of paradox and i'll explain it this way sakichi was a very single-minded inventor he had over 22 companies by my count and they weren't successful, all of them. And there was a, because he'd make a lot of money from his inventions and then he'd spend it all on the next invention. Because if you remember back to what I said earlier, this was his calling to be an inventor. It wasn't to be an, a businessman. You know, he would appoint business managers so that he had time and money to invent. Now, he resigned from one company early on because of a conflict he had with uh, the managers he, he'd appointed and the uh, conflict between invention and profit. Now, this again came to a head in 1910 when he was in his mid-40s and he was forced to resign from the Toyota Loom Works. And he, he kind of quotes that as he was forced to resign by profit-pursuing managers and the incompatibility between profit and invention. So the story goes, and it's a really interesting story if people want to read it, but he left for America with a broken heart, um, probably thinking that he might set up business over there. But um, he returned with a new passion for self-reliance, including a strategy to manage paradox, the paradox of profit and contribution to society through invention. And I still think... We have to think about that, and this fits well with a lot of healthcare areas, I think, that how do we manage uh, keeping the cost right with our contribution to society and how can we be inventive about that? Now, this is a capability that is rather unique, I think, to Toyota, and gaining the synergies that can live within paradox uh, can really propel a business forward. Now, if, if I generalise a little bit, I see management and leadership thought in the West and a lot of other businesses, even in Japan, wanting one or the other all the time or some form of trade-off. They never really want either end. 
And there's a time when people believe that you know, high quality and low cost could not live together. Mm, right. They were a paradox. Now, Toyota dealt with this paradox and they keep dealing with these paradoxes that people don't believe can actually be um, compatible. And so I think one of the organising skills that Toyota has that is a really good one to try and understand and teach your managers and leaders is how to manage the uncertainty around paradox, keep it alive and keep it in balance. But then again, many managers are not developed in this way and therefore they find it stressful and unmanageable. So I think if we go back to those concepts, then people can connect with the contribution to society, they can connect to creativity, um, they can get true understanding of how they can start to move forward and, and it becomes something that you can plan and use into the future. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I mean, I'm curious your thoughts. I mean, I, I hear things, uh, parallels. Um, I don't know. Some of what you talk about there makes me think of Elon Musk, of being an inventor versus being a business person. Elon Musk is a brilliant idea person, but it seems like his companies have um, operational challenges. Um, you know, Elon Musk is one who talked about basically, well, you know, we're going to fully automate the Model 3 line. He's in like more of a mind, mindset of replacing people, even though Tesla reminds customers that this is not a fully self-driving car. It's got driving assist and, and sometimes customers don't don't heed those warnings. But um, I don't know, maybe, maybe history repeats itself in some ways. We need inventors, though. We need people oh, yeah. who are willing to push the boundaries like he does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but back to you know, the idea of you know, helping others in this process. I mean, are there, are there ways, like maybe now as you're working with organizations, as you're still navigating, you know, working with organizations outside of Toyota, if there are certain things that would be taken for granted in Toyota, like long-term focus, and that doesn't exist in a company, have you found ways to try to coach an executive or prod them to let's say embrace more long-term thinking or, you know, that's tough, right? Yeah, it is. But um, what I try to do there is I take the A3 upper level and we do an A3 on top management thinking. So you might get the executive team to start to build a paper around what are their thoughts on the future? What do they think the environment's doing? And so you the CEO or the executive then has these papers flowing up to them about what the leadership team is thinking about the future. And this allows them to put their own top management thinking into play as well. So we've got to get more dialogue at the top of organisations rather than decision-making. We need to get them to start to build sense-making. And so I, I take them through a process of trying to extract a good top management thinking and um, get them to reflect a lot more on that. So that's at the leadership team area is use the A3s and tools in different formats to extract really good outside thinking around where is, where is the business going, um, what are the environment settings that we have, we'll have to confront. And these things are moving quickly at the moment and a CEO needs really good input from the people below. Now... We don't see at the top of organisations a lot of this activity because they're getting sucked down into the day-to-day -day running of businesses. We need to get better organised so that we actually give them the space to actually do a lot more strategic thinking. Now, I understand that part of strategic thinking these days is handling the emergent, but you can do uh, put in place a lot of really good development programs to help people handle the emergent, but also think about the long-term philosophy that should be in place for the business to survive long-term. Mm -hmm. So one other thing I was curious to ask you, um, differences that you see between Toyota and other companies in Japan, because you know one thing I, that came across to me when I went to Japan for the first time even five years ago was a better realization that the Toyota way or the Toyota business philosophy is not exactly the same as the typical Japanese business. Uh, I'm curious, what are some of your observations or learnings in, in, in that regard? 
I think they're really good questions that we need to ask ourselves a bit. And so um, you're dead right. I see the same thing. I see that it's not necessarily connected to the nation's culture. It's a Toyota-specific thing. And it's grown out of a few things, I suppose. Um, I would say the gaps that I see between Toyota and other companies, uh, the Toyota is very high in their competency in two domains. One is organising and the other one is developing. You know, why are they exceptional at organising? We can see that because, firstly, they run extreme levels of um, stability. You know, they, they are very conscious of levelling their systems and stabilising them. They're agile in changing direction and quick to act on the emergent. They bring new technologies to market. They recover from crisis quickly. We don't see that sort of rebound in many companies. On the competency of developing, they are masters in integrating things like paradox. And there's a paradox as well of synchronous flow and sequential flow. Sequential flow uh, is more evident in Western companies. Synchronous flow is a lot more complex. And, and I think if you look down on the production lines at Toyota, um, when we were up on that platform, uh, there was we were overlooking the instrument panel line. And if we look down on that panel line, there were um, 20 different instrument panels on that line. So there wasn't one the same that I saw when I looked through them. So this is highly customised, synchronous um, production, which is not normally what we see in a production line. Mm. Now, what that means is that the workers have to be very mindful. They have to be really engaged with the work. It's not repetitive at all. Everything's different coming towards them. And that's why we see the team leaders, group leaders, so are, so attentive on those lines because they know it's very dynamic. I think that's another one that we have to work on a lot better. We were, you know, in Toyota in Australia and I would say similarly in America, we were never as good at designing work to be that syn synchronous in mm -hmm. our own Toyota plants compared to the Japanese plants. I don't know. What are your thoughts? You've well, seen American plants and Japanese plants. To me, they're very different in Toyota. Yeah. Yeah, well, and, and first off, when and just, you know, for clarification, when you say organizing, you're really talking about designing, organizing systems, designing the work and the flow. You're, you're not talking a more limited view, meaning like 5S, visual workplace yes. organization. Right? Yeah. No, I'm not talking about that. You're right. Organizing at, so a lot of my discussion is at the design level of systems. So um, not so much at the implementation Behind Toyota, you have to imagine that there are people who are designing synchronous development systems so that they they all integrate and work really well together so that we're developing managers and that development program connects with the leadership programs, connects into the, the team member programs. Very integrated type of organising. Now, you know, these guys, because they've mastered sequential and synchronous flow and how to put it together, what I was talking about there about this mindfulness of the workers, it actually delivers a psychological flow, which is like putting the workers in the zone on the line. And we could see that, you know, and, and I can test that. You know, if I walk down a line, unfortunately, uh, Toyota line in Australia, people would look up and say hi to me, but you wouldn't see that sort of, um, you know, people you, looking up on a, yeah, a Toyota you, you, production line. They're, they're, they're what some people might say. They're, they're in the zone. They're in that state, that state of psychological flow. Where, yeah, I mean, in the Toyota plant in San Antonio, you're driving by in uh, the tour tram, and, and people look up and, and wave. Which, you know, part of me always says, well, in a way, it's a good sign. They're not frantic. You know, the, the, the pace of work is calm enough that they can look up for a second and nod their head or wave. But I remember the point you were making in Japan that when the work is well designed, you get in that state of flow, you're, you, you wouldn't notice the tram coming by, the day goes by much more quickly. Um, yeah, that, I thought that was a really interesting yeah. perspective. Uh, but you know, back to your question around what I've seen, I mean, I, we, we saw this, you know, at, at Toyota, there was uh, one other supplier if you, if you remember, there was a woman working in a U-shaped cell 
And it was just so perfectly synchronized. And she was in that state of flow. And, you know, I, I, one of the things I always try to look for is does the, how, does the work seem easy? Like in a lot of hospitals, the work is not at all designed to be easy or even achievable. And people are just struggling all day long, which is exhausting and has all kinds of human costs. But I've also seen American facilities that are really well done. So I agree with you. This isn't just an, it's not just a matter of national culture or that certain countries are good at this. I think it comes down to the organization. And really that, that welding of, uh, you know, job design and job crafting, the input of the person and the input of the designer of the work. And the group leaders on those lines that we looked over, they were exceptionally good at designing work and the team members were, were really good at crafting their own workplace. I think one of the cells we visited in a support company to Toyota or a supplier, one guy was actually dancing around the cell. His foot movements were, you know, it was a dance move as he worked around the cell. I thought, wow, you know, this, this is amazing. Um, so I think they're really good at... Um, and organizing. I don't know that we in our Western companies really understand that sort of level of organizing of work. And, you know, it, it requires a, a lot of understanding, like you're trying to put out there with your book on, you know, variation and measurement. You know, there, there has to be an understanding of variation theory to get to that level, routine theory, pattern theory, process theory. And I don't see the maturity of that in organizations out of Toyota. So it's a paradigm shift in thinking uh, to train people in in the concept of organising. And only when we do that will we get the stability that we see. Only when we do that will we be able to handle the emergence that comes out of it, you know, and, and realise that this will free managers up, you know, give them better routines. It will enable them to be more innovating. Um, so here I make the observation that, you know, organising is a lot more chaotic in non-Toyota groups of companies and the synchronisation between the methodologies seems more random rather than by design and we have, you know, few processes sometimes to vet what we let into our organisation's development system. People are allowed to bring in, you know, the latest fad, this book, that book, but there's no integrated patterns within those implementations to gain a real synergy and 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 for that we see a lot of leadership training that stands alone and it's not seen as a mode within organizing and a pattern within organizing so i i challenge people to be a little bit careful about that and, and another area i think there's there's not a really good understanding of kpis and the activities around it and how, how so already well, when you go into a Toyota plant, they, they have very defined KPI trees. You may not see them on the walls, but they have a really good understanding of all of the KPIs that affect uh, the workplace. And there's hundreds and hundreds of KPIs in those trees, though they may only be using a few at that point in time. What this means is that they can stabilise certain parts of their system and experiment with certain parts and know uh, that they're having a direct effect. Now, therefore, also, we, we need to start to move in KPI management in the West to um, being able to be more agile with our KPIs. So we tend to just set targets each year and then go for achieving them. We have to be a lot more agile in setting targets around the KPIs. So the maturity is not there yet to move rapidly through multiple uh, KPIs, solve the problems more quickly uh, and change direction. Now, why do I say that? If you go really hard at one KPI, the energy level, the closer you get to achieving it, goes up and up and up because you've got more and more work to put into it. At some point in time, if you do get a really good achievement against one KPI, You've got to say 80% is really good. We can, if we move to another KPI now during the year, then we can get with less effort, um, just as good an impact. Do you see where I'm getting in that mm -hmm. agile of 
agility of KPIs? Well, well, I think of, I think of like smaller, faster PDCA cycles instead of an <laughs> annual chunk of here was the goal. Wait for the year to end. Did you hit the goal? No. Or react. You, you could do this more frequently throughout the year and adjust, right? That's it. Exactly. You know, I like that. Yeah. Well, can so that's you final? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, go for it. Yes. Well, I was going to say, you know, sort of final thought, you know, you've talked about organizing. Can, can you talk more, you know, you, you saw the blog post that I wrote that was inspired by conversations we had in Japan about Toyota being a development organization. Can you talk a little bit more about what that means as being a, a strength for, for Toyota and some other companies? Well, I'll probably just go back to a little bit of history here as well, if I can. And up until the 1950s, Toyota was running a very cost-plus business model. So it was like every other business. And in the 1950s, they hit a few problems uh, financially. And the president of sales and marketing, Shotaro Kamiya, uh, at the time, he set the rules for splitting the Toyota sales and manufacturing into two different companies. And he was probably the uh, instigator, I'd say, of um, true TPS because he set up the financial model. Introducing a new business model requires a new model to make uh, profit. Now, he described the Toyota management as having an overly bullish attitude towards manufacturing, which led to costly inventories. So it's kind of telling us that at the 1950s, Toyota was no different at that point to, to most other companies in the way they were manufacturing cars. And the rules he put in place required a new way of thinking. And the rules was simple but included manufacturing could not build more cars than ordered by the sales department and they had to decrease their employees to a minimum. And he also negotiated a buying price with manufacturing that was currently below cost. So he added, you know, uh, cost pressures that were severe. Now, the only way that uh, these could be achieved was really to mindfully engage the workers in extracting as much waste from the system as possible. Now, where did they look? Of course, they looked to training within industry. You know, they mm, right in American. They, they worked straight on that. And look, I was in Japan, you know, and I was talking about the language, you know, within the Toyota job instruction, which is training within industry. And I said, look, it's a little bit, you know, out of date for today, and it's not uh, the most correct English. And really interestingly, the guy said to me, look, I've got the original copy here. You know, we haven't changed a word in it. And it was really interesting to read those words and, you know, what I thought was a little bit harsh was probably the way um, Americans spoke in those days, you know, around their language. But um, so it was very uh, true to that original training within industry uh, standard. And I don't think that we also use that kind of thinking enough these days to get really good standards and training and development systems in place. But they put a lot of effort into that in the 1950s. And then they, you know, this was the foundation then of the production system. It was based on a profit model. You know, it was based on that kind of thinking. So when they were training people, and they still do it today, they talk to them about, well, we have a target cost and we have, you know, a target price and therefore we have to work to that kind of thinking. And this has been expanded over the years into value engineering and value analysis. And more recently, Toyota's added a third one, which is value in innovation. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. in the 60s, they built into the, the development systems, the quality circles. And I saw a few people commenting on their experiences on the blog around, you know, quality circle training being about being the development of the team member. And the other really interesting thing I found with Toyota is that um, their development systems are so built into the workplace, whereas a lot of Western systems are outside the workplace and, and the development is seen as a separate event, whereas Toyota is very good at building the actual learning activity very close to work. And, of course, after Quality Circles, we saw the development and implementation of Hoshin to get some top-down problems into um, the workplace as well. So if we take people out of organisations, you have nothing. Nothing happens. Uh, so there is a direct relationship between the performance of a business and how um, the people are trained and developed. Yeah. And 
I think we all agree to that, but we don't actually put systems in place to achieve it. And, you know, we can all nod our heads and say, yeah, I understand that. Um, but development also to actually get a competitive advantage, you have to build that internal capability. And when it's a very tacit practical knowledge, you have to develop your own trainers from, from within. And that's what Toyota does very well. You know, if you outsource your competitive advantage, then everyone else will, will have that. So mm. you don't mm. tend to see any outsiders training Toyota team members too often is mm. what I'd say, but you do see that a lot in external organisations. Yeah. Therefore, we don't support development really strongly in a lot of our organisations. So the yeah. leader should be really uh, connected to the development system and the development arm of the organisation because this is where they can intervene and actually change the business and improve the rate of thinking within the business. Mm -hmm. So we, we also don't see leadership really connecting solidly to the development arm to, to achieve their strategies. Yeah. And I'm reminded uh, one company, it wasn't Toyota, but one other company we went to on the tour, they were talking about some of their quality circle teams that, you know, I've been, I've seen other organizations where the quality circle projects were six months long, which I think, well, that that's a long time. And one of the companies, if I, I don't have my notes in front of me, if I remember right, some of these quality circles were open for a year or maybe two years. And as much as I'm a proponent of, of developing, developing people and engaging people, I got, I found myself trapped in a little better Western thinking of saying, but that's too slow. You've got to solve the problem faster. And I'm like, well, but it's just, there's, there's a different approach. And, and, and I think you or somebody pointed out, well, the fact that the quality circle was open and active that long doesn't mean they only solved one thing over the course of that long period. But it's just, I, I kind of caught myself. I'm like, well, I, I was framing that differently than I was seeing it as different than it really was, which maybe happens when you're, um, coming in and, and visiting and observing. Maybe some of that just happens. Look, I, I remember that one as well. And um, the actual quality circle she was talking about was related to dialogue between the different companies or different parts of the company, if I remember, and how they were first building trust and how it took time to build that with the different departments. And so some of those things can take a while. And the other part of it is they were seeing the quality circle is developing them, developing them in their dialogue and their their communication skills. And sometimes that takes a little bit longer than solving a problem on the shop floor. If I remember, she was uh, doing a quality circle in, in the administrative support areas. Yeah. Is that the right, yeah. same one? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the same thing. But, you know, maybe a final thought before we wrap up here. I mean, back to the comparison of Toyota and other companies. If, if Toyota is a development company in philosophy and practice, how, how common is that in other Japanese companies from your experience or exposure? I think it's starting to, um, you know, become a little bit uh, more. It's, it's like in the West where lean is growing to an extent. I'd say you're seeing these concepts being adapted more into the uh, Japanese um, mm business system as well but they also have a very uh, deep um, I suppose connection within their businesses so they um, you know share profit they have their their networks and Toyota has all of its preferred supplier networks it's tier ones twos and threes and we also saw how prosperous say their tier one suppliers were in that electronics firm mm -hmm. they certainly weren't lacking anything at all so it wasn't a case of um, you know uh, putting hard pressure on your suppliers to cut costs. They, they were getting um, plenty for their research and development. I think um, what I am starting to see a little bit more in the Japanese companies is these more formal development systems. You know, Toyota has its floor management development system on the floor, which is teaching, you know, the um, management capability of team members and team leaders and group leaders in the area of measures and 
and uh, the areas that you cover in your book. So it's very much about the areas of process variations and routines. Now, the more that a manager can take out of their head uh, and put into the workplace and actually um, make it knowledge in the workplace, the more free time they have to do other things. And I don't think um, uh, Western businesses and realise this, that they prefer people to come to them, control the knowledge. But if you actually put that knowledge physically through 5S, through visualisation, through standardised work into the workplace, you put, uh, it's like Jadoka management. You're actually uh, allowing um, the person to interact with the information where they need it. It frees up the person as a manager to do lots of other things yeah. and move the business forward. So um, I, I am confident that that is going to become more important into the future. If we yeah. don't develop our people, they won't be able to change with the environments that we're heading into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and ho- hopefully we'll see more of that. Hopefully we'll see that in more healthcare organizations and more software companies and, and other types of settings um, around the world. But um, well, as we on wrap that- up, Oh, go ahead. I suppose on that mark, though, yeah, they're going to need help. You know, they won't know what they don't know. And so mm-hmm. we have to see them open up to people coming in and helping them uh, understand those things. And and also we, we need to see people go and benchmark and have a look at what other people are doing. There's lots of people, lots of companies doing great things out there. And, you know, we have to get out there and have a good look around and, and bring some ideas back to our own businesses and engage the right people. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're out of time for today. Maybe we can do a future podcast. You know, you talked a little bit early on about the plant closure and the continued development of people and the upskilling, preparing people for future careers. Uh, that, that's, that's a story I'd rather not rush. So maybe we can talk about that some other time. Excellent. Yep. Um, if people want to reach out to you or, or connect with you online through uh, LinkedIn or uh, through through Hansha or if they're in Australia through the Australian AME. Um, what what? How would you recommend people reach out and connect with you? Uh, I've got a little website up there they can tap into if they like. It's Prototypo Nous. It means intelligent patterns. So p r o t y p o n o u s dot com. So my email address is on there if they've got any further questions or comments about what we had today, but we can also see how they, um, you know, comment on the blog as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll, I'll put a link to the web page uh, in the show notes. How, again, how do you spell that? It's P R O T Y P O N O U S N O U S. Okay. Yeah, taking a couple of Greek words there. Patterns <laughs> and intelligent. Okay, there we go. So uh, again, our guest today has been um, Barry McCarthy talking about his experiences. I guess you know before during and after Toyota. Um, Thought-provoking, as always. Uh, Really nice to reconnect with you after the tour. And and for people who are listening, if you want to go to uh, Japan, um, Hansha runs a really, really, really great trip. Um, I enjoyed the experience in October. You get a lot of time to talk with people like Barry and the back of buses and over meals and and during during tours. So Barry, thank you again for all of that. And thank you for being a guest on the podcast. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been great. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.